Welcome, you're listening to The Yarn, where we bring you some of the best reporting from the graduate journalism courses here at the University of Melbourne. I'm Fia Walsh. Climate resilience. Is it a pragmatic response to the climate emergency, or is it shifting attention away from those who should be taking responsibility? Here to help us unpack this question is recent Master of Journalism student, Mariah Papadopoulos. Hi, Mariah. Hey, Fia. Thanks for having me. First things first, what are we talking about when we refer to climate resilience? Well, broadly, climate resilience is about preparing for, responding to and sort of dealing with natural disasters or other crises that are related to climate. Um, But the problem is, um, and, you know, the problem that it motivated me to pursue this story is that climate resilience is sort of being marketed as a solution or at the very least a way of dealing with climate change. Mm -hmm. So it's more addressing the symptoms rather than, say, climate change mitigation, which looks at actually reducing and avoiding emissions. Yeah, absolutely. So after having done research and and written this story, I've sort of visualising it as two really important things and one of those things is climate resilience which I understand as disaster recovery and the other is the process of taking real and tangible action to get to net zero emissions. You talk about climate resilience as a bit controversial but what are some of the problems of taking this approach? Um, It's become a bit controversial and a bit contested or quite a lot contested Um, because one way of looking at it is that climate resilience is really, really important. Um, And actually what motivated me to to kind of pursue this story is that I think I was reading an article at the beginning of last year, so in January 2020, um, and I read an article that Prime Minister Scott Morrison had had announced or had, had somehow said that he was more focused on practical measures to address the effect of the effects of climate change in Australia rather than bolstering emissions targets. Um, And he spoke about resilience and adaptation and talking about how Australia would experience longer and hotter and drier summers and how we needed to deal with that. And it was kind of under the, the pretext of keeping Australia safe. And this was the best way to help Australians now in the present. And this is why I think it's controversial because while I think it's really important to put measures in place so as to be able to respond to and deal with crises. Um, what's wrong with that angle is that it, it's, it's an either or situation. So either we pursue resilience or we kind of try and tackle emissions and try and reduce our emissions. Um, but I think it's really important to understand that it's not an either or situation. It's actually two really, really important pieces of one puzzle. Um, And I think that's why it becomes controversial. When we talk about resilience and when we champion only resilience, it really puts the onus on people that are in vulnerable communities that are suffering the fallout of environmental crises um, rather than governments that are making the big decisions. Yeah, I mean, it's unquestionable that building climate resilience is really important. The latest IPCC report confirmed that even if we stopped all emissions today, we're still going to see things like higher sea levels, hotter summers, more extreme weather events. 
So helping communities deal with that is is crucial, particularly when those communities are not the ones responsible for most carbon emissions. Is the real issue here not so much resilience building projects, but more how resilience is framed in the wider approach to climate change? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, as you said, um, you know, we're going to need a massive effort if we're going to get to net zero emissions. But as you said, we're sort of already past the point of no return. And that's not to say that it's too late to mitigate climate change. Um, You know, that's really important. It's not to say that it's too late at all, but we are at a point where we're going to have to deal with the effects of bushfire events, mass migration, cyclones, hurricanes, other extreme events. Um, And therefore, you know, we need to have disaster response and disaster recovery processes set up and in place. Um, so that we can help and support those impacted and also, you know, to anticipate disasters that will happen in the future. But at the same time, I think what's most controversial about this is the way that we frame the issue. So it's not an either or situation. It's do we do we focus on just resilience and we're um, focusing on only dealing with the symptoms or do we look at this in a broad way where we're thinking about okay let's try and anticipate disasters let's try and help those who are experiencing disasters but at the same time let's try and go to the root cause um, because that's where we're going to find real um, and tangible change. You mentioned Scott Morrison's focus on adaptation and resilience instead of mitigation And you also give the example of how resilience approaches played out in Timor-Leste. Can you expand a bit on those examples? What do they teach us about climate resilience? Um, I think what, what they teach us is that, and with the example of Timor-Leste, I think I spoke to Gordon Peake about that example, and it's a place that was really close to him as he spent a lot of time there. Um, And when he saw that those events were happening earlier this year. um, And those events were massive landslides and and flooding, is that right? Yes. So when he saw those events that were happening, um, I think his words were to me that, you know, there were all these resilience projects that were going on or that had been set up. But ultimately, you know, it wasn't enough because, um, you know, in in a few decades, I can't remember the exact figure that he said, but in a few decades, um, you know, there are going to be areas in Timor-Leste that are uninhabitable. And the way that we deal with that or the way that we prevent that happening in other places is by looking at the root cause rather than solely considering, okay, how do we respond to this in resilience capacity? Um, And, you know, right now there's a lot of pressure on the Morrison government to have Australia adopt stronger targets. And there's been a lot of talk about Australia not pulling its weight when it comes to emissions reduction. Um, You know, some might say that Australia has been quite uncooperative and even antagonistic when it comes to like making decisions at international conferences, Um, you know. So what I was aiming to do with this article is learn about how we need to frame and understand these two things, disaster recovery 
or resilience um, and emissions reductions and then convey what I had learned and share it with readers. So looking at those two examples, um, abroad in Timor-Leste, which is one of the more vulnerable um, communities, but also looking at our role at home, I think it was really important to consider those two contexts. Yeah, they are sort of opposite ends of the spectrum where Australia is one of the bigger emitters and a wealthier country may be able to uh, implement resilience projects more effectively than Timor. But I like the analogy that you use in your story where resilience just needs to be one part of the puzzle. And if we can look at it this way, the outlook is a bit more hopeful. Can you speak to that? I feel like some of the people that you interviewed, uh, as much as there is a lot of pessimism in this subject, they did offer quite a hopeful outlook. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the three people that I spoke to were incredible and I, I'm really privileged to have been able to get their insights um, and convey them in the story. Um, but, you know, I think also a good way of looking at it, a great, fantastic way of looking at it was this thought experiment that Dr. Lisa Gibbs shared when I interviewed her and subsequently it became the beginning of the article. Um, basically, it's about considering that you live by a large river and one day you see um, someone drowning in the river and you dive in and save them. And then the next day there's another person in the river and you have to save them and the next day and so on. So then we're faced with this dilemma of what, what do we do? Do we stand there and keep watch and use resources to dive in and save all these people that are somehow um, ending up in the river drowning? Or do we travel upstream and we try to address the root cause? Um, so I think that's a really clear way of framing and understanding the idea of resilience and how that piece of the puzzle fits in. Um, and the reason why I think that's really positive is because if we can understand how resilience fits into the broader picture, then we're going to be better at tackling this issue. Um, and I think, yeah, it's important to be really positive and understand that, okay, now we know how resilience fits into this. We know that we need to also drastically reduce our emissions and, and, and that action needs to be taken on an, an international, on an international scale by our, our leaders in negotiating at forums such as like the COP26, which is coming up um, in November. But when we, when we understand then we can move forward much easier. And as you were saying earlier, Fia, um, part of this issue and a significant part of this issue is that it's more about the framing. It's not that we need to stop being resilient. It's about the framing. We just need to understand that it's one part of the puzzle and not the entire thing. Of course. And if you use that analogy, then it becomes really clear. You're not going to let someone drown in the river right in front of you, but also it's illogical. It doesn't make sense to not figure out what the wider problem is and try put a stop to that as well. And another thing that's really positive as well is that it's not that we don't have information. We have everything we need. Um, something that was quite chilling that Siobhan McDonnell shared with me. Um, she's a legal anthropologist and she has done negotiating in forums like the UN on behalf of um, on behalf of the Republic of Vanuatu. And she shared with me, in the context of the Black Summer bushfires, 
She said, it's not that we didn't see events like this coming. You know, the problem is that we did see them coming. We had lots of warning from climate scientists. Siobhan McDonald was teaching at ANU, teaching her students that, you know, this was going to be one of the worst summers on record. So we were well aware that the black bush, the black summer bushfires were going to be at that scale and we actually failed to prepare for it. So while that's quite chilling, it also signals that we, we have information and, and there are a lot of experts out there. There are countless experts out there doing incredible work. Um, and the result of that is that we know what we need to do and we just need to commit and do it as a country. Um, and I think that's quite positive. We have the capacity. We're, we're just lacking the political will. And I guess the risk is that things like resilience and being able to frame resilience as a solution to climate change works to limit that political will when we do need um, mitigation in the puzzle as well. Here on Radio Fodder and The Citizen, you're listening to The Yarn. I'm Fia Walsh and my guest is Mariah Papadopoulos. Mariah, let's have a look at your reporting process for this story. Climate change is a huge story. It's one of the biggest stories in the world and it's ongoing, but it can also be pretty tricky to report on. It's the scale of the problem, feel a bit like a broken record, emphasising just how, how bad things are and how little is being done. And it can also be a little bit overwhelming, I guess. How did you approach this story? Did you have any of those difficulties um, in narrowing it down? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, quite, it's quite difficult to narrow this huge problem down into a smaller scale issue that we can look at in the space of one digital story and understand and come away with something from it. But framing it in this in this way and in looking at the word resilience I thought was a great way of looking at it and that's because it takes this word resilience and it explains what it means and it explains how we need to understand the difference between resilience and a lack of action and then move forward and sort of come away with an understanding that this is, as I've sort of kept saying, a piece of the puzzle rather than the whole puzzle. So it is difficult not to sound like a broken record because so much in climate reporting is stressing the framing of things and understanding how everything fits together. And part of that is because there is a lot of um, contested information or even misinformation as to what can be done and what's within our abilities um, as a society to confront climate change. So it's important to continue to stress those things that we have been stressing in order to in order to in order to almost confront any sort of idea that it's not possible to mitigate climate change because as I was saying earlier it is within our abilities but I think the role of climate reporting within all of this is to continue to convey that message that it is possible because it's very easy to get bogged down in this idea of we've got no hope so when climate reporting is quite direct and 
um, realistic, it can seem pessimistic. So there's a fine line there in, in terms of staying positive. But I think that promoting an, an understanding and an accurate understanding of the phenomena that are at play and of the words that are being used to describe those phenomena is really important and can help us to stay positive as well. Mm. It, it is an ongoing debate about journalists' role in representing things accurately but also not alienating the audience with overly pessimistic language and, and examples. Um, it's, it's a tricky thing to navigate. Absolutely. And initially, you know, I was thinking that this article or this story was going to be framed as kind of two-sided with one side stressing that resilience was really important and the other side stressing that climate um, heating and reducing climate heating was more important. But in the end, it, it turned out to be that the experts that I spoke to were in agreement because Dr. Lisa Gibbs, who is a leader of public health research relating to disaster recovery and was going to be um, my key voice in the story related to resilience, it turned out that she was saying to me, no, we're not not a solution by ourselves. We're here doing important work, but we also need the people who are upriver to relate to the the scenario that she used we need the people that are upriver to do their part too Hmm. that's also a good lesson of keeping an open mind as a reporter I know it's easy to go in sometimes with a bit of an idea of how you want your story to go and if the talent doesn't cooperate um, you need to be open to changing absolutely finally Mariah do you have any social media where you'd like our audience to follow you Um, You can follow me on Twitter at Mariah Papp and on Instagram at Mariah Journal. Mariah, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for your... You can read Mariah Papadopoulos' story, Climate, Resilience, A Solution or Another Word for Not Our Problem at thecitizen.org.au. Big thanks to producer Jordan Beasley, Radio photo producer is Mark Yin, music is by Daniel Birch, and graphic design by Rose Gertzakis. That's it for this week. I'm Fia Walsh. See you next time here on The Yarn.